Our scripture today is again, uh, looking again at Romans 8, 28, and 29. Uh, so if you have your device and you want to pull that out, uh, it should be up on the screen as well. But Romans 8, 28, and 29, and then we're going to move to a time of prayer. Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Thanks, Kevin. A few quick things just before we come to the message. First one, very important. We miss you, Central. Oh man, this thing just kind of keeps going on. You need to know your staff, we're praying for you, we're thinking of you, we're enjoying connecting with you. And as Kevin said as well in his prayer, that was a great prayer. A special welcome back uh, to the Rendell family, our beloved missionaries. So good to see you guys. Uh, made it safely back. Uh, we love you and can't wait to be able to connect with you after your whole self-isolation period is done. Uh, a few more quick things. Uh, we began a little series we call For Such a Time as This. These were weekday devotionals uh, that we released, kind of four-minute videos. I think they served their purpose very well early on, uh, but we kind of feel like that purpose has now been well served, and so those are now going to come uh, to a completion. The other thing is to continue to encourage you. Now that you're allowed to meet in little groups of six as following the uh, government's protocols, Please be doing that. Make sure you're doing that. It, this past week, speaking personally, was so good for me. Connecting with some people from the church, uh, being able to have some good Christian fellowship, talking about the things of God, the just encouragement that I felt. This live stream stuff is good. I, I'm, I'm grateful we have it. Uh, I'm grateful for Zoom. But it just does not compare to the real thing. Let's be honest, right? Uh, technology is great, but we are really learning the limitations of technology and how much we enjoy true face-to-face -face Christian fellowship. So this is our big encouragement to you. As you're able, as you feel comfortable within the government protocols, gather with other believers in the church for encouragement and fellowship. Maybe on Sunday morning, you can start connecting. Maybe if, if you're by yourself, get one other person, watch the service together, talk about it afterwards, maybe have lunch together, maybe get one family, two families together, community groups, if you split maybe in half for a little bit. But let's be pursuing Christian fellowship with each other as we transition now into phase two of our government's restart plan. All right, that's enough of the preliminaries. Uh, let's talk about where we've been and uh, where we're going. We are doing a series, if you're just joining us today, we're doing a series uh, through the second half of Romans chapter 8. And the reason why I wanted to speak on this particular part of the Bible is that there's perhaps no greater need that we have in our lives in general, and then specifically in this present hour, than how to deal with hardship and difficulties and suffering. This is always one of the biggest issues that we have as human beings and as Christians, and there is perhaps no better place in the Bible to go than in uh, Romans, the second half of chapter 8. So that's what we've been doing, and last week we made it up to Romans 8 verse 28, which is of course one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. So let's just remind you of it, Kevin just read it for you, but here it is again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This verse has been described by many as one of the most comforting verses in all of the Bible. One of the descriptions I liked hearing, someone said, it's like a pillow for the heads of those who are weary. And so as your pastor, 
One of my great desires is to shepherd you well in the whole area of hardship, of difficulty, of suffering. And I think the way the Bible tells us and the way I want to help to shepherd you well is to comfort you, to encourage you, to equip you to know how to deal with times such as this. And again, there's perhaps no better verse in all the Bible than Romans 8.28. And so today I want to spend another week on this. And today I want, to, uh, I want to talk about four things. First of all, I kind of want to recap last week and let's talk about what the promise actually says. It'll be a bit of teaching, add some new parts to it. Then I want to do the rest of the time in application. This is all the stuff I wanted to do last week, but it would have been an hour and a half and you would have turned me off and that just wouldn't have worked. And so I, I turned it into two messages. So in the second place, I want to talk about how we apply the promise of Romans 8.28 to ourselves then third, how we should not apply the promise of Romans 8.28 to others. And then finally, I just want to reflect a little bit on how God might be working out this promise right now during this COVID-19 crisis. So that's where we're going. Let's begin then by recapping where we were last week and giving a little bit of new teaching Let's begin by simply talking about this, what the promise of Romans 8.28 says. Let's just be clear on the teaching here. So let's put the verse on the screen and let's just remember some of the key words and make sure we get what this promise is actually saying. Notice Romans 8.28 makes the incredible statement, there's a big word in here, that God is working. That's one of the big key words, that God is at work together all things for good. God is working, but notice he's not just working in general, he's working for those who love God. So this promise is not for every single person in the world. This promise is specifically for the children of God, for those who've given their life to Jesus Christ, who are trusting in him for salvation. If that's you, this promise is for you. And it's saying that the almighty hand of God is at work to do something. And what is he doing? Look at the next little phrase. It says he's overruling every event, every circumstance. He's doing it all for your good. For your good. God is working all things for your good. And once again, we did a lot on this last week. Uh, if you haven't heard that message, you should probably go back and hear it because some very important things we said about what this promise is not saying. And what it's not saying is that all the bad things in your life are actually good things. That's not what it's saying at all. COVID-19 is not good. Cancer is not good. Being laid off from your job is not good. None of these things are good. The sin in your life is not good. But the incredible thing about this verse, it's saying that God's going to take all of those bad things and by his almighty power, he's going to overrule every circumstance. He's going to overrule every single bad thing and he's going to turn it all for the good of those who love him. That's what the promise is saying. But now, here was the most important question that you got to come to. If you really want to understand this, here's the question you've got to ask and you must be able to answer clearly. What is the good? What is this good thing that God is working all things together for in the lives of his children? Is, is this verse actually saying God is going to take all the bad things in your life and what he's going to do is he's going to, to overrule them so every bad thing is going to become a good circumstance. Bad circumstance turn into a good one so that if you become a Christian, your life is perpetually going to get better and better and better. You're going to have better life circumstances because God's going to take the bad circumstances and make them into good ones. Is that what it's saying? No, that's not at all what it's saying. To paraphrase Tim Keller, I like this. 
God does not promise to give you better life circumstances, no, but God does promise to give you a better life. Read that again. God does not promise to give you better life circumstances, but God does promise to give you a better life. Now, maybe you're saying, what's the difference? All the difference in the world. And you already know this. If all you need is better life circumstances, then it would follow that the people in this world who have the best life circumstances would also be the happiest, most fulfilled, and love God the most. But is that the case? No, we often see, of course, that the very people who are the most rich, the most famous, can often be, not always, but can often be unhappy, can have addiction issues, and their marriages often fall apart. In other words, just getting better life circumstances is not your greatest need. That's not what you need. Better life circumstances can be a good thing, but it's not what you need most. Because even if you got better life circumstances, you got a nicer house, you got a nicer car, you had more money in the bank, all that kind of stuff, It does not follow that you'll become a more patient person, that the anger that often comes out of you that ruins relationships, that that's going to get solved. It does not follow that if you have better life circumstances, you're going to be perfectly happy and totally fulfilled. It doesn't follow that if you have better life circumstances, somehow, oh, now you're going to resist temptation more and your heart is going to be so just following Christ. You're going to be sold out for him. You're going to love him. You're going to follow him. Those things do not necessarily follow from better life circumstances. But the wonderful news of Romans 8.28 is that God is not working all things just to give you a bit better life, to give you a bit better circumstances. No. Romans 8.28 is saying that God is overruling every single event to give you the supreme good, to give you the ultimate good, the thing actually that you truly want. You might not even know it. You might not even know how to get there, but God is working everything towards giving you your ultimate supreme good. So I still haven't answered the question, what is the good? What is this good that Paul is saying God is working all things together for? He answered it in the very next verse, in verse 29. So remember, verse 29 begins with this little word, for. That indicates that he is now continuing his thought from verse 28. And he continues on and he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, and here's the phrase, to be conformed to the image of his Son. To be conformed to the image of his Son. Jesus is the perfect human being. Jesus is, I mean, just read his life. All through the history of the world, people have been fascinated with Jesus, and it's because of his character. I mean, he's very strong, and yet he's gentle. He all cares about justice hugely. He also cares about mercy. His way of dealing with people, he's honest and he's tactful, yet he also says what needs to be said. All the ways that he lives, and it's not just Jesus when he was during his time on this earth. Being conformed to the image of his son refers to his son right now, that Jesus passed through death. He was raised from the dead. God gave him a resurrection body that cannot die and that he now dwells in the presence of his father forever. This past Thursday was Ascension Thursday. If you follow the church calendar year, Jesus ascended to the father. This is the Jesus that Romans 8, 28 and 29 is saying God is working all things together to conform us to be in the image of his Son. So this promise then is saying that God is going to turn you, if you are his child, into the perfect human being. 
He is going to turn you into what you really always want. Imagine just, let's just take patience and anger. Let's say you were always patient. Let's say your anger only came out in proper ways. It never ruined any relationships. Let's say you could resist temptation, that you would love God and serve Him with all of your heart. There was no conflict within you, that you had a body that could no longer die, that you would dwell in the presence of God. That is the person that God is working all things to make you become. It's the person you've always wanted to be. And so God is working all things to that end. Now let's add one new piece of teaching that we didn't talk about last week. Because notice in verse 29, there is actually even a higher reason why God is doing all this, higher than your ultimate good. There's something above that that Paul now begins to talk about. So here's what he says in 28 and 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But there's another phrase, in order that, it means there's something higher. He's doing all of this for some higher purpose. In order that he might be, that's he being Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Don't miss that phrase. That's really important. What that phrase tells you is that your salvation is really important. You being conformed to the image of Jesus is really important, but there's something higher than that. God is working out your salvation for something even beyond you, something which God cherishes beyond even your own ultimate good. And what is it? That Jesus himself might be the firstborn among many brothers. What does that mean, firstborn? In in ancient times, and even in many cultures today, the firstborn son in the family held the highest status in the family. It was a place of respect, a place of privilege. Quite frankly, I think we need to go back to this, speaking as a firstborn. But we won't touch on that one today. Jesus, though, is the firstborn. God wants to give him the place of preeminence within his family. So what this verse is saying is, God sent his son into the world because God wants to make a family. When you become a Christian, God becomes your father. Every other Christian becomes your brother or your sister. And Jesus gets the place of the eldest son. He gets the place of ultimate respect. He gets the place of preeminence. So in other words, in the grand plan of God, the grand purpose of God, he is working all things so that he'll win sinners to himself through Jesus Christ. And on that great day, A great family will gather with millions and millions of brothers and sisters. And then the eldest son will come into the presence and we will all cry out, worthy are you, Jesus, to receive all honor and glory and power. It's your blood that purchased us. It's because of what you did that we were adopted into God's family. It's all because of you. And so, Jesus, we give you the place of preeminence. This is the thing that God is working all things to. Your ultimate good and the ultimate glorification of his son. So that's what Romans 8.28 is saying. What a promise. What comfort to know that God is taking all the bad circumstances of your life and he is shaping them, he is overruling them to work out for your ultimate good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. So that's mostly all recap. Now what I want to do is I want to take the rest of the time and I just want to apply this. Really apply it to our lives and what this should look like. So now that you know what the promise says, let's talk in the second place about this. How to apply the promise of Romans 8.28 to your own self. Here's two ways 
I want to suggest that you can do this. To find that comfort that is meant to, to, to be able to lay your head down when you feel weary, to lay your head down on the pillow of this verse. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put this in the form of two things that you want to continually tell yourself in light of Romans 8.28. Here's the first one. Continually say to yourself, my life is not out of control, even though it feels like it. You've got to remind yourself of this, especially when your life is falling apart. Say, my life is not out of control, even though it might feel it. What Romans 8.28 tells us is that we do not live in a universe that is ruled by blind chance. Then your life really is out of control. Romans 8.28 shows us that you do not live in a universe where even an impersonal force like fate is guiding and, and the cold hand of fate is going to shift things and turn things and overrule all events. No, that's not what it says either. Romans 8.28 tells you that there is a personal being, God himself, who rules the universe. And he's not just a great powerful being. If you are uh, in Jesus Christ, he is also your father. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are loved by the Father. This is the hand that is ruling the universe. Not chance, not fate, but the hand of a loving father to his children. So oftentimes, when we as Christians, when our life falls apart or really hard things come, we'll just bury our head in our hands and we'll just say, I mean, nothing good can come out of this. What could possibly come out of this that could be good? But Romans 8.28 contradicts that. It says, oh yes, this is not good what is happening to you. You do not enjoy it. You do not welcome it. You do not even want it. But rest your head on the pillow of Romans 8.28 and realize your life is not out of control. It's not just random chance that is happening. But the hand of your loving Father is going to take whatever's going on and He's going to overrule it. He's going to work it around eventually for your ultimate happiness, for your ultimate good when you are conformed to the image of His Son. So comfort yourself by applying this promise and just say to yourself all the time, I might feel like my life is out of control. I might feel like no good can come out of this. But Romans 8.28 says that is wrong. My life is not out of control and there's a loving Father whose almighty hand will bring me into my ultimate good. That's the first thing to say to yourself. Here's the second. Continually say to yourself, I can't know why, but I can know who and what. I can't know why, but I can know who and what. You know what I mean by that, right? When our life gets difficult, when hard things come our way, we often, our default answer can often be, why is this happening? Why would God let this happen to me? But you know what? The older you get, the more mature you become as a believer, the more you realize there's almost no point even asking that question because the Bible never says that God will give you an answer for why this particular or that particular circumstance has happened in your life. Never promises you that. And so if you just keep asking it, you kind of eventually drive yourself crazy. But here's where the Bible does shift your thinking. It says, don't always be asking why, because even Job never got an answer for why his suffering happened. You get to read the book of Job, but he doesn't get it. What the Bible does say is you cannot know why, but you can know who, and you can know what. You can know who, 
is in charge of the universe and who really is in charge of your life. And as we just said, it's your loving Heavenly Father who is with you and who is for you. Find comfort in that. Even though you cannot know why, you can know who. Not only that, you can know what your heavenly Father is doing with this entire situation. You don't know why this has been allowed in your life, but you can know absolutely dogmatically what he is going to do with it. And Romans 8.28 says he's going to take whatever that bad thing is, he's going to overrule it and eventually shape it for your final supreme and ultimate happiness and good. So you cannot know why, but you can know who and what. And that is so important because so often when our life falls apart, we're saying a voice, maybe it's, maybe it's evil spirits, maybe it's our own voice, who knows? But our voice, accusing voices will say, why has this happened to you? I mean, if you're really God's child, doesn't he love you? And if he loves you, why would this be happening to you? And so that accusing voice begins to speak. So here's my question for you. How do you respond when that accusing voice begins to speak? My suggestion is, you can't really say any answer to why. All you can do is allow that accusing voice to speak. But once it's done speaking, you can respond. And what you need to say is, I confess, I do not know why this is happening, and I do not like it. But listen, accusing voice, <laughs> I do know who is in charge of my life, and I do know that God loves me, and I know that he loves me because if he didn't love me, why would he give up his own beloved son to death so that I could come into his family? He didn't need to do that. Why would he do that? I don't know why this is happening, but surely it cannot be because he does not love me because he proved his love for me already. I know who, and I also know what, according to Romans 8, 28. I know that this event, though I can't understand it, I don't know why it's come, I know that somehow my Father, my loving Heavenly Father, will work this all out for my ultimate good. So talk away, accusing voice. Keep going all you want. I'm not going to listen to the why. I'm going to focus on the who, and I'm going to focus on the what. So there are two ways that you can take this pillow of Romans 8.28 and lay your weary head down on it when you cannot understand all that is going on in your life, when you don't enjoy it and you don't welcome it. Now that we've talked about how to apply it to ourselves, I want to flip this around and I want to talk about this promise and how it relates to other Christians that we know. So let's talk in the third place now about this, how not to apply the promise of Romans 8.28 to others, how not to do it. Now, many of you may know the name Joni Erickson Tata. Do you know that name? If you don't know her, what an incredible Christian woman. Written all kinds of books. You should read all of them. Absolutely incredible woman. In 1967, when she was a teenager, she went to the ocean to go swimming with some friends. She misjudged the depth of the water she was going to jump into. She dove in headfirst, hit the bottom, and then immediately she fractured a, a parts of her neck and spine, and she immediately became a quadriplegic. 16 years old, from there on, she's been a quadriplegic and done amazing things for Jesus. So now here's a question for you. Let's say you were Johnny's friend. You were even maybe with her when this happened. And you went to the hospital that same day or the next day, and you went to visit her in her hospital bed. What would you say to her now that her whole life has collapsed and she's going to be a quadriplegic for the rest of her life? What words would you say? Now, of course, you weren't there, so it's hypothetical. But listen, <laughs> 
You will be in that spot many times. When someone in your family, something bad happens to them or someone you know, you'll be in a hospital room, you'll be in someone's living room, you will be in that spot. So just go back to Johnny's moment for a minute and ask yourself, what would you say to her in that moment? A few years ago, she was interviewed, and the interviewer asked her this exact question. The question was, so all the people that visited you in the hospital after, what did they say that you found was very helpful, or what did they say that maybe you found was not helpful at all when you were in that moment? And she says that many well-meaning Christian friends came to see her and quoted Romans 8.28 to her. And if you know Johnny, she's a very mature believer. But she said, even though she loves that promise, and it has become one of the rocks on her, underneath her life, it's become the pillow on which she lays her head all the time, she emphasizes that that was not the right time to quote that verse to someone right when their life has fallen apart. What she says, rather, is the Bible does not call us to have a Bible study about this kind of thing. The Bible calls us in those moments to weep with those who weep simply to weep with those who weep. Then to illustrate it, she tells a story about when she was a little girl before her diving accident. And she was just a little girl, and she was riding her bike down this really steep hill. She went to make a right-hand turn, and she, uh, there was some gravel, and she crashed her bike. And so she skimmed up and skidded up her knee, and she had uh, uh, lots of pain. And so she screamed for her dad to come in that moment to come over and to help her. And so then she says, imagine you're in that moment, and you see your daughter, let's just say she's six, and she's screaming, dad, dad, and she's bleeding all over her knee and cuts down her arms and all this kind of stuff. And, and then dad walks up, and let's say you're the dad, and then she says, dad, why would this happen to me? Why would this happen? If you're the dad, in that moment, would you respond by saying, well, Johnny, what, why this happened is so that you can learn for the future. When you're going down steep hills, you need to brake. When you go around corners, you've got to be careful the angle your bike is on because if it's wrong and the gravel's there, you'll slip out. So this is really going to work for your good, and eventually you'll learn how to ride a bike down a hill properly. Is that what you would say to a, a little girl laying there bleeding on the ground screaming for her dad? Of course not. What she needs in that moment is for her dad to simply pick her up and say, there, there, sweetheart, daddy's here, rubber back, <laughs> it's okay, it's okay, I'm here. Of course, 10 minutes later, 20 minutes later, it'd be perfectly appropriate to say, all right, let's sit down and let's talk about what we can learn out of this situation. Let's talk about how this can work out for your good for the future as you begin to move forward. And what Johnny's trying to say with that is there's a time and a place for everything. There are promises of God that are particularly suited to certain situations and to others. And what she was trying to emphasize is that when people are in immediate grief, when everything is very raw, it's not the time to think things through. That's the time to put your arm around someone, to weep with them and weep, just to remind them of God's love. Sometimes say nothing at all. Sometimes just to pray with them, just to read a verse of encouragement toward them. Johnny says this happened with her. She said one night when she was in the hospital at the very beginning, one of her friends came and came at 2 a.m., long past visiting hours. Remember, this is the 60s, so I don't know, nowadays you can't get away with this. But this friend snuck past the nurses because they were on a break and uh, snuck into Johnny's room, and she said this. She said, quote, she climbed in the bed next to me, snuggled real close, and softly began to sing, Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Johnny then goes on to say this, quote, 
I still get choked up thinking about it 45 years later. She gave me something that was priceless. She helped me encounter Jesus Christ in a warm and personal way. So we must be careful when we take a verse like Romans 8, 28. It's a great verse. But as I think you've seen over the last few weeks, it does require a bit of explanation. And if someone's not familiar with it, they can easily take it. And I've seen this. They can easily take it. Uh, uh, people saying, are you saying God's saying this is good that this all happened to me? But if someone's weeping there, that's not the time to have a Bible study and work it through. It's the time to just weep with those who weep to mourn with those who mourn. There's a time for everything under the sun. And what I've discovered in my pastoral ministry is that's what you need to do in those moments of trauma and of grief. And then a week later, two weeks later, then you begin the process of, all right, I want to help strengthen this person through suffering. And that's when Romans 8.28 can become one of the greatest verses you can take them to. That's when it becomes a pillow. That's when it becomes a rock under their feet. So be careful in the way that you treat people and talk with people when they're very raw in their suffering. Be careful not to be like Job's friends who came in and they spoke words that only added to Job's pain. Be careful to use words that are going to encourage them. If they know Romans 8, 28 really well, this might be the time to talk about it. But it's probably best in wisdom to cry with somebody, to put your arm around them, and then in due time to show them the glory of this promise so that like Johnny... Eventually, this becomes a pillow and it becomes a rock under their feet to hold them during suffering. So that's how we apply it to our own selves. That's how we can apply it to others. But now I thought it would be good for us right now. This, I'm excited about this next part. I thought it would be good for us to take Romans 8.28 and in the final place, let's talk about this thing. Let's talk about how God might be fulfilling the promise of Romans 8.28 during COVID-19. Let's really apply this to our lives. Now, notice very carefully, I use the word might. I probably should even underline it, probably should highlight it, probably should have capitalized it, because here's what I need to preface all of this by saying. I don't really know how God is fulfilling Romans 8.28. These are your pastor's best guesses. Not only that, even if all of the Christians in the world reflected on this, we probably still wouldn't know 99% of what God is doing to fulfill this verse. Moreover, we're in the middle of it. We don't even have the benefit of hindsight. And so we don't even be able to accurately assess the whole entire situation. But having given all those disclaimers, I still think it's helpful for us to encourage ourselves, to comfort ourselves when we're in difficult times, to reflect on how might God be conforming all of his children to the image of his son during this time? How is he shaping us to be more like Jesus right now so we can encourage our own hearts? So let me give you a whole bunch of my quick thoughts. The first one will be just a little longer, and then I'm going to fire through a whole bunch of them. And then maybe you can reflect on them. You could send me emails. We could kind of start a comforting, encouraging conversation on how God might be fulfilling this verse during COVID-19. Here's the first thing I think I've seen about what he's doing. I think we are waking up from spiritual slumber. I'm not going to use the word revival at all here. That's not what's going on. But I, I feel like I am seeing many believers talking to many believers who are saying, I've kind of been spiritually sleepy for some time. And I feel like COVID-19 has been a bit of a bucket of cold water kind of tossed on my face. And I'm waking up to the fact that I've kind of been spiritually asleep for a long time. And it's easy to fall spiritually asleep in our Western world. I mean, I'm speaking to you in Victoria right now. What's the most beautiful city in the whole world? 
Yeah, that's right. That's the city we live in. What is the greatest country in all the world to live in? Correct, that's Canada. I don't know why anyone's debating right now. This is, this is just a given. Uh, I mean, even, uh, we have a bias, of course, but even any study you look at, always Canada's top three countries in the whole world. And let's just be honest, living on the West Coast, we live on an island in the Pacific. There's no better place than here. But here's the danger. Here's the danger of long periods of prosperity and enjoyment and comfort. There's a great danger in all of that. That danger God tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 8 when he talks to the Israelites, they're about to enter the promised land, and God says you need to really pay attention. You need to take special care when you get into that land because he says once you've built houses for yourselves, once you've got lots of flocks and herds, in other words, your portfolio's doing really well, your bank account's got lots of money in it, once your stomachs are full and you're just enjoying life, Deuteronomy chapter 8 says this, take care lest you forget the Lord your God. In other words, long periods of physical prosperity and comfort often result in spiritual sleepiness, spiritual dullness. But COVID-19, I think, for many people, has been a bucket of cold water. Because here's some stories, just people I'm talking to, Christians, they'll say things like, you know, right now, I am beginning to relook at all the priorities in my life. Some people are even looking at career changes. They say, I've been going down this path for a long time. This is really giving me a chance to reflect. I feel like my priorities, I don't know why, but they went off track some time ago, and I'm trying to get them back on track. People are asking questions like, what do I want to get rid of in my life, and what do I want to keep after all of COVID-19? And when I hear their answers, they're great answers. I think this present crisis, God has been overruling the bad circumstance of this, and one of the things he's doing is waking up spiritually sleepy, spiritually dull Christians to ensure that God is their highest priority and they're really living for him. Surely that's one way that he's conforming us to the image of his son. Second, We are learning to trust God more because we see how insecure our lives actually are. Again, we've lived with great comfort. Basically, whatever we wanted to do in our lives, we've done. And now we've been severely chastened. We have very much now learned the great truth of James chapter 4 that we must not boast. We must not use our words to say things like, oh yeah, I'm going to go on this vacation next month. Oh yeah, I'm going to go over to Vancouver. I'm going to do this this weekend. Rather, as James says, we ought to say... If the Lord wills it, I will do this or that tomorrow. Because we've quickly learned you can will all you want, and you'll quickly learn you're not a God, you do not control your world, and everything can be taken from you. So we've been chastened by this, but we are learning now to trust God more. Of course, as Christians, we've always known we're dependent on God for everything. No one would say that was wrong. But are we not now learning it in experience? In other words, we're learning it truly deep down. Surely that's a good thing when we can be conformed to the image of Jesus where we trust God for everything, recognizing everything comes from his hand and we are dependent upon him for everything. Third, we are praying more. I think particularly early on, I hope this continues, but particularly early on, again, as Christians, we've always believed in prayer. But let's be honest, for many Christians, prayer can feel a bit like a chore, and we find almost any reason to get out of it. I was reading John Newton, the great author of Amazing Grace, 
And he said this, he said, if instead of enjoying times with God in prayer, we are often, quote, dragged before God like a slave, and we run away from prayer like a thief. I mean, we often come to prayer like a slave. We feel like, okay, I have to do this. I got to obey the master. And then when we're there, how can I quickly get away like a thief? But I think one of the great things about COVID-19 is this crisis has put us on our knees. It has forced us to our knees to say, God, we need you. I need you in everything. There's more desperation in our prayers, especially, of course, early on, Christians fasting, praying. Globally, this is going on. Surely, hearts that pray more are more desperate to see God. That is becoming more like Jesus. God is overruling COVID and turning us more into people of prayer. Fourth, we are dealing with sin in our lives. Again, a great thing, painful thing, but a great thing. Sin in our lives can often lay hidden. It can lay dormant. It's kind of like a nest of vipers in the backyard somewhere, maybe behind some bushes, in some bushes. It can lay hidden. You don't even really know it's there. But trials, things like COVID-19, are like going back and suddenly cutting down a bush or trying to walk through it. And what it does, it can stir up the nest of vipers so they can hiss. They're moving all over the place. You didn't really even know they were there before. And that's not an enjoyable experience. But if you've got a nest of vipers in the backyard, you want to know it's there, and you want to get rid of it. And one of the great things about trials, well, the hard thing about trials is they actually bring out your true heart. You know, I always think it's kind of humorous, sadly, ironically humorous, when bad things happen and people say, I'm just not like that. That's not me. I don't know why I did that. Actually, it's the very opposite. The trial just brought out who you actually are. It's like if you're holding a glass of water and someone shakes your hand, it spills over. What's in your heart actually comes out during a trial. And that's not a fun thing to see. It's not fun to discover that you've got a nest of vipers in your backyard. But what we're seeing is people are starting, I'm talking to Christians who are saying things like this. They're saying, you know what? I'm discovering I'm really not as patient as I thought. Or sadly, I'm seeing lots of articles talking about how much extra alcohol people have been consuming during COVID-19, that the, the liquor sales in British Columbia are just skyrocketed, and how much of that people are learning, maybe I've become too dependent on something like this, not using it as a good gift to be enjoyed like God intends, but I've been abusing this, or things like pornography, running to that for comfort during a difficult time, or marriages, people talking about you know, I thought things were going pretty well, but now I'm discovering there's some things in my marriage that really need to be dealt with. All of that's painful. It's like finding a nest of vipers in your backyard. But God, according to Romans 8:28, overrules those things and it begins to shape us into the image of his son. And so the positive of this is I'm hearing people say things like, man, we're dealing with some of the things in our marriage that we've never dealt with before. People saying, like, I've allowed certain sins in my life. I've allowed them there for far too long, and now I'm beginning to take action to root those things out, to destroy the nest of vipers, because I want to be free of those things now. Again, Christians dealing with their sin and destroying it, that truly is the fulfillment of Romans 8.28, being conformed to the image of his Son. Fifth, we are more aware of our own mortality. I think this is another thing that's happened. Most of us have grown up in a very sheltered and safe world. We know there's wars elsewhere. We hear stories elsewhere of bad things that happen in the world. But we have remained largely untouched. 
as we talked about in the Ecclesiastes series, we do not live with a sharp sense of our own mortality. But when something like COVID happens and we begin to really realize, I could die, especially early on, I think we all began to think about this, like, I could die. Am I prepared to die? Have I lived well? You begin to reflect, how have I lived my life? Am I right with God? Am I living properly for him? How will I give an account on judgment day? Has Jesus become my savior? Our own mortality, God uses that in COVID to make us reflect on the most important things in life. Sixth, I think we are even rejoicing more in our great hope. I've seen lots of this, I love this one, but very quickly, when things are difficult, When things are sour, hope becomes even more sweet. And that the hope we've looked at in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning, we are groaning, but now we rejoice even more to know of what God will do one day when Jesus returns to bring us into his new world. We're rejoicing in hope. Seventh, we are growing in our love for one another. Oh, some good stories on this. How do, what does it mean to be like Jesus? It means to love others. And how many stories could we tell on this one? People in our own church, you're, I know you're phoning one another just to encourage people. Marvelous. Helping people get groceries. Acts of love that way. All the little ways that everyone's caring for one another as a family here at Central. Good job, Central. And I think this is what God is doing. Overruling this to help us to love one another. Eighth. I think we're being forced to try new ways of making disciples. We're being forced to think through how can we use digital and online resources to ensure the gospel goes forward. And as Christians, and let's just be honest, even as Central, we've been a little slow on all this kind of stuff. But now we're rethinking. We're saying, okay, how can we use this technology in order to contextualize and bring the gospel message to people? And then finally, I think we're also learning the superior value of face-to-face fellowship over digital fellowship. This is the contrast with the previous one. So I think this is the point we're at exactly right now. We're so grateful for technology. We're grateful for live stream. We're grateful for Zoom. But sometimes in the past, Christians have kind of overblown this and been like, you know what? If you really want to be a church for the future, everything needs to be online. It's all digital. That's the way the world's going. And, and many, like myself, too, have pushed back and said, no, there must always be face-to-face. We should use technology, but face-to-face always has to be what true community is. And isn't this the exact moment we are in? I would say the moment we are in right now is a moment that says, technology's great, but I hate technology. I want it all gone, and I just want to hug someone. I want to gather. And so I think one of the good things that God may be working out of this is now there's a greater longing for the people of God to be together. There's a greater longing for Sunday worship when we can be together. And what I hope happens long term when this is all over, I hope that we will have a new appreciation for how wonderful it is to gather together, to worship on a Sunday morning gathering, in small groups, in community groups. I hope that for our whole lives we'll think to ourselves, hmm, maybe I don't feel like going to church today. Maybe I don't feel like going to a community group. Oh, but I remember this is so important. Technology has its limits. It's great, but I need to pursue community. I hope that's one of the long-term things God is working out. Well, there you have it. Nine things on how I think God is using Romans 8.28 right now. I'm sure you could think of some yourself. You could agree or disagree with me. That was not Bible. That was my reflection, so you can agree or disagree all you like. But let me wrap it up with this. I wonder if there's some of you today, you've 
through this COVID-19, you begin to say, hey, I need to look into God a bit more. Maybe you've just tuned into our live service in the last little while, and you're saying, I need to figure this out. The simple message for you, this is what God's word is to you. You need to give your life to Jesus Christ. That's what God wants to do during COVID, that this verse might be true for you. He wants to give you all the things that you truly long for, your ultimate good, but you've got to bow the knee and say, Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. I'm going to lead you in a prayer in just a moment to help you along that. But then for Christians as well, if this has been a bucket of cold water for you, why not take this moment, rededicate your heart to God. Say, God, maybe my priorities have gotten off. Maybe I've not done things right in the past. But now, because of COVID, Father, I'm praying that you would help me to live more for you. Rededicate your heart to God. So let me lead you in a prayer right now, particularly if you would like to give your life to Jesus today. Let's pray together. If you'd like to do that, just pray a simple prayer like the one I'm praying right now. Just say, Father in heaven, forgive me for my sins. Forgive me that I've often just lived for myself. Forgive me for anything I've done wrong because of Jesus Christ. Jesus, save me. Jesus, rescue me. And turn me into one who looks just like you. And maybe, believers, let me just give you a moment right now to rededicate your heart to God. Father, we bow our knee before you. This COVID-19 crisis, especially early on, Father, really woke us up. We see that we are mortal. We see how out of control things can get. We quickly realize that we are not in control. There is only one, you, Father, who are in control. And we want you to be our loving Father. We rededicate ourselves to you today. Help us to have priorities that reflect your priorities. Help us to learn to love one another as you've called us to. Help us to know how to spend our money in ways that honors you. All of our life, Father, we rededicate it to you. May you use this time during COVID-19, Father, to help us to further refine that. Help us to reflect well. Help us to think through our lives that when this is all over and even beginning now, that our priorities would truly reflect yours. Do this in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.